Hello, and welcome to the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, brought to you by the North Carolina Sustainable Energy Association. I'm your host, Matt Abel. Hello, Squeaky Clean listeners. Welcome to the 42nd episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, where we bring you the latest in North Carolina clean energy news, policy, and more every two weeks. Thanks for tuning back into another episode of the podcast. I wasn't sure if we were going to be able to make it to another episode for the year, since it's been so much busier than any of us could have anticipated. Our team has been in the midst of preparing our legislative priorities for this long legislative session to address a lot of the issues that have stymied the industry over the past few years since the passage of HB 589. We are hoping this year will be a pivotal year to address opportunities around continued growth of the utility-scale solar industry, open the door for other technologies including offshore wind and energy storage, while also creating and fixing market mechanisms that allow for low and middle income participation in the clean energy economy. At the same time, the regulatory side of the house has been occupied with the challenging rollout of the 2021 solar rebates, where demand for the rebates far exceeded the supply, along with other issues like the ongoing rate cases and avoided costs. As many of you who are tuning in may be aware, February is Black History Month. Given this important period of time, NCSEA wanted to make sure we're elevating the profile of significant black voices in the clean energy industry who have impacted the industry for the better. While a new Instagram series just skims the surface, it's a great place to start to recognize the importance of diversity in creating a clean energy economy that is holistic and representative in nature. To check out the new series, make sure to follow NCSEA on Instagram. And as a quick reminder, our partners over at NC Green Power recently opened applications for their 2021 Solar Plus Schools program. As part of the 2021 phase, NC Green Power will be providing grants for up to 15 schools across the state to install solar systems. If you're interested in seeing solar installed at your child's school or know a school that would be a great candidate, the application period is open now until February 28th. To find out more about the program and to apply, visit ncgreenpower.org. Today's podcast is brought to you by Mosley Architects, a full-service architecture and engineering firm with offices in both Raleigh and Charlotte. Mosley Architects is a 2018 Energy Star Partner of the Year and has designed more than 140 LEED-certified buildings. For more information, check out at MosleyArch on Twitter, that's at M-O-S-E-L-E-Y-A-R-C-H on Twitter, or visit MosleyArchitects.com. Okay, the time is here. We're off to the offshore races. We have an action-packed, content-rich episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, one unlike what we've ever brought to you before. So, for many of our listeners, you're probably aware, North Carolina is a leader in solar energy. You've probably heard us mention it time and time again. Well, a piece of the clean energy puzzle that's often overlooked here in North Carolina, not because of a lack of opportunities or resource, but just from the lack of development up until this point, is wind. And specifically, in today's case, offshore wind. We're going to cover this topic up and down from all angles to give a good sense as to where North Carolina is in the offshore wind picture, what opportunities lie on the road ahead, 
and what structures are in place to support offshore wind as it becomes a more ever-present piece of the clean energy pie in North Carolina. So, to give you a preview of today's episode, we're talking to an offshore wind developer to give us a glimpse into where we're at, a wind turbine manufacturer to provide a picture of the wind supply chain in North Carolina and the country, and then we're looping in our friends at the Department of Commerce to talk about state government's role in supporting the development of this burgeoning industry. All right, we've got lots to cover, so let's jump right into it. Clean energy. Clean energy. So I'm really excited today to bring you our next guest on the Squeaky Clean Energy podcast. Our guest today is Senior Director for New Business Offshore Wind. In this role, he leads the U.S. offshore businesses' commercial activities, including RFP responses, offtake agreements, lease auction bids, as well as external communications and state policy, legislative and regulatory affairs. Our guest served as interim vice president for offshore wind from July through October 2020. He is an energy and environmental professional with over 20 years of experience in senior management positions with Avangrid Renewables and the Pennsylvania Department of Environmental Protection. Our guest joined Avangrid in 2007 as director of policy and regulatory affairs. In concert with the Avangrid Renewables team, he has participated in the development of over 1,200 megawatts of wind energy in seven states. Squeaky clean listeners, welcome to the podcast, Eric Thuma of Avangrid Renewables. Eric, welcome to the podcast. Uh, Thank you very much for having me, Matt. It's a pleasure to be here. We're really, really excited to to talk to you today um, about some of the updates on offshore wind here in North Carolina, in the Southeast, and some of your work over at Avangrid. So let's go ahead and jump right into it. So can you tell us a little bit more about Avangrid and your role at the company? Sure. So Avangrid Renewables is the the third largest uh, owner operator of of, uh, commercial scale wind farms in in the United States. Um, And and we have been, uh, since approximately 2006, um, one of the the leading renewable energy companies uh, in America. And we're now um, also involved in, in commercial scale solar projects. So we've expanded our portfolio to include both wind and solar. Um, now we're moving into the next frontier, which is offshore wind. And we're very excited about that as a major growth opportunity in the United States. Um, as, as, we, as we know, um, the, many of the major load centers in the United States are along the coasts. And on the Atlantic coast, we have the very unique situation of uh, the right kind of shallow water depths with very high wind speeds uh, that present an opportunity to really cost effectively build the offshore wind uh, resource. Um, Grid Renewables is partners or the 100% leaseholder of three offshore wind leases. And we can talk a little bit more about what that means if, if you like. Um, but in Massachusetts, we are a 50-50 partner with Copenhagen Infrastructure Partners in a joint venture that's called Vineyard Wind. And we have, uh, as I mentioned, two leases, two Bureau of Ocean Energy Management leases there. And uh, then we are, a uh, thing that you're maybe most interested in is we are the 100% leaseholder of the, the Kitty Hawk uh, lease, which is 24 miles uh, east of Corolla, North Carolina, in the, in the North Carolina uh, wind energy area. Great. So 
you know, the, the opportunities for, for offshore wind across the country seem to, to really be seeing a resurgence here recently. Um, and before we dive into North Carolina, um, can you talk a little bit about some of the momentum taking place in other states? I know you just had mentioned uh, some of the, the projects that, that you guys are involved in. Um, but I'm, I'm also thinking about other places like Virginia with the implementation of the Clean Economy Act and New York, where NYSERDA recently uh, closed a solicitation for 2,500 megawatts of offshore wind capacity. So can you talk a little bit more about some of those opportunities across the country in the offshore wind space? Sure. So there's really really two two drivers, I, I think. So um, the, the way that I think about it is you have the, the activities of the federal government, and, and the federal government are really the supplier they're really on the supply side. And so that activity happens through the Department of Interior, through the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, which is responsible for leasing the, the federal wind energy areas. And those are competitive lease auctions. There's been 15 lease areas auctioned so far off of the Atlantic coast. And those have become increasingly, uh, increasingly competitive and, and beneficial for the federal government. So the last set of auctions, which occurred in Massachusetts for three lease areas. Um, those were, they set the record for a total of 405 million um, of, of lease revenue. Um, so I think that the federal government has stepped up to the plate and provided those, uh, those leases to sort of set the supply table. And then on the, on the other side, the corresponding side are the states. And that is really where the demand comes from. That's where the electricity customers are. And it's really state policy that really drives electricity markets in the United States. So what we have seen, as you've alluded to, is that from Massachusetts south to Virginia, we now have states with uh, goals and requirements for 30 gigawatts of offshore wind by 20, 2035. So that combination of, of federal leasing with state targets that are in, in many cases motivated by a combination of looking to direct economic development into those states to revitalize port communities, uh, coupled with a desire to decarbonize the economies, and then to do it with more locally produced energy, more so than importing from, let's say, you know, far away places where it's windier. That's really been what, what's driven this phenomenon. And it's, it's, it's something that's evolved very, very quickly. So I would say when I started in, in 2019, um, there was less than 10 gigawatts of state targets, and now we're up, up to 30. And, and just to close on this, the, so the last one that you noted was the Virginia Clean Economy Act, which was, was passed by the Virginia legislature and signed by the governor just this year, um, which establishes 5.2 gigawatts of offshore wind as being in the public interest. So uh, tremendous opportunities along the coast that we think are just going to continue to grow and expand over time. Great. Yeah. So, so Avangrid is, is not new here to, to North Carolina. Um, as many of our listeners may recall, the state saw its first commercial wind farm come into operation back in 2016 over in the eastern part of the state, otherwise known as Amazon Wind Farm East, which features 104 turbines uh, developed by Avangrid. Uh, so why is North Carolina an attractive state uh, for a company uh, like yours? Well, I had the privilege to work on that wind farm, so so thanks for mentioning it. And, and we were very privileged and proud to be in uh, northeastern North Carolina, the, the, the first wind farm that was we would consider to be in, in the southern United States. Um, so speaking on, on that wind farm particularly, um, first of all, you always need to have a good site. So we had a, had a, had a very, uh, we had a, a windy site. It was proximate to transmission um, in which we had sort of the right, 
land use, you know, basically a, an open agricultural area where we were going to be a complementary use to that to that area. So that was that was critical. Um, being part of the PJM interconnection in that part of the state also that gave us a market entree to be able to to reach into other markets. So that was that was an imperative uh, part of that structure. And then I would also say we had we had a lot of support from from the governor's from the governor's office um, at that time, and then and then also following up with with Governor Cooper when when he came in later. So a lot of support from both Republican and Democratic administrations. Um, that were essential to us getting that wind farm built and operating and now delivering, um, you know, economic and tax benefits to Perquimans and, and Pascatan counties. Great. And, and you know, um, your work here is not done in the state. And a big reason why we were excited to have you on the podcast was to uh, talk about Avangrid's prospects for offshore projects in the state as well. Um, so can you tell us, and I know you mentioned earlier, um, the, the Kitty Hawk project. So can you tell us a little bit more about some of these potential offshore projects uh, here in the state of North Carolina that Avangrid is involved in? Right. So our, our Kitty Hawk lease area is has a potential for up to 2,500 megawatts. And that's an equivalent of powering 700,000 homes. So where we are right now is we are working on permitting the first phase of that project, which would be around 800 megawatts. And so we are doing all the survey work that is required for us to be able to submit permits to the federal agencies and then also work with the state and local permitting because there's permitting at all three levels. So that survey work, which is done through vessels and, and going out into the ocean and taking samples of the ocean bottom, monitoring um, different parts of the ocean floor and how that, how that looks in terms of vessels and unexploded ordinances and how the the ocean bottom and sediments move and so forth. And then also very importantly, looking at the natural wildlife, both avian species and also marine mammals and understanding their characteristics. So um, we're able to accommodate and, and be complementary to all, all, the, all, the, all those um, uh, different ecological um, uses of the ocean as we go forward. Um, so al along with the survey work and the early stage planning of the, of the first phase of the project, uh, we also have three interconnection applications in with PJM in the Virginia Beach area, and those are moving through the, the PJM process, and we've completed two of the three stages of that approval process. So from a permitting and interconnection phase of the project, uh, we feel very good about moving the project forward, and, and, uh, and that is all proceeding uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a timely manner. The, Challenge, one of the challenges the project has that all renewable energy projects have is we have to identify customers. So that's sort of the next focus that we have over the next year or so, that really identifying customer opportunities to, de to deliver power. Um, and that's kind of the third, the third piece of the, of the development uh, triangle, if you will, permitting interconnection customer. So moving forward well on the first two and trying to focus on the third one is really where the, where the project is right now. And, you know, my next question, I think maybe ties in a little bit to um, one of the, the questions that we talked about earlier and, and starting to see more and more momentum pick up in uh, the offshore wind space. But I'm, I'm curious um, from your perspective, you know, what obstacles or barriers uh, you are currently seeing uh, for development of offshore wind projects here in the state of North Carolina or along the Atlantic seaboard? Well, I really sound like, like a broken record, but it, it, it really is a customer 
really identifying the customers. We've got to get the customers comfortable with a new, a new technology that they, they haven't maybe uh, been part of yet. So that's, that's the first piece. Um, and then we have to work within the, the regulated market structures to also get the regulators comfortable. Um, so that, that is really our, our main challenge now is, is working through establishing a, a customer interest in the project. And then ultimately we'll have to take a new technology through the regulatory process and whatever, whatever state we interconnect into. Um, you know, I think, I think there's some, some broader challenges in, in the Atlantic uh, seaboard of the United States that we need to, to work on. I think first of all is, is supply chain. So we want to get more top level suppliers into the United States. And what that really, I think, requires is to start seeing successes of the early stage projects that they're coming online um, and that this market is here to stay and that's gonna be a growing market. I think the initial signals that we have 30 gigawatts of demand are, have started piquing people's interest and they know there's gonna be a lot of opportunity. And I think once we get the first couple of projects permitted and then moving towards construction, I think that's gonna be the key aspect of this to really bring, bring the supply chain uh, more to the fore. Um, but what has been happening is states are using the power procurement process to get economic development and ports commitments. So it's going to start happening over time as each one of these projects and comes along. There's going to be more and more uh, supply chain commitments that will be realized and more and more port commitments that will be realized. And I think that's going to really create a, create a virtuous circle. Later on, Because as we get more supply chain, more local suppliers, that reduces our risk. And it also will decrease our costs over time as we're locally sourcing more. And then all the goodwill of having the that sort of supply chain established, I think it really creates an opportunity for us to really grow the industry over time. <laughs> we just need to get the first few projects going. And since you, you mentioned supply chain, right, we've seen overwhelming support for uh, offshore wind here in the state of North Carolina through the governor's office, which has really trickled down through uh, some of the state agencies and support from the Economic Development Partnership of North Carolina and the Department of Commerce. Whoop. And side note, as Eric mentioned, a key area of focus within North Carolina and beyond is going to be the supply chain for the offshore wind industry. Later on in this story, you'll have a chance to hear from John Harden at the Department of Commerce, who will provide some updates on how the state is approaching the topic of supply chain. So stay tuned to hear more. All right, jumping back into the interview. You know, how important has it been for Avangrid to have the support of political leadership within each of the states that you're operating in to advance your projects? You know, I think the, the reality with energy policy in the United States is that, that public policy is a driver, right? You, 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 you need the support of both, you need the support of both of your local stakeholders. That's absolutely imperative. Any project, and I've been working on renewable energy projects since 2007 in multiple states, the, the local stakeholders are absolutely paramount and you need to have them in support of your project. Uh, but then the public policy is, is the driver. So if you look at across the United States, what has is, is really promoted renewables in addition to the work of the federal government with ITC and things of that nature and on offshore, the, the leasing we talked about has been state policy, has been state procurement policy through the development of renewable portfolio standards. And what that allowed to happen was the creation of economies of scale and learnings. And that's what helped see you really the rapid decline in the price of, of onshore wind and solar. So the idea is, can we follow the same trajectory with offshore wind? We, we get the, the, 
the public policy support, which we have from, from Maryland to, to at least Virginia. And I think we're seeing that hopefully going even further south for sure. Um, and then we start building the supply chain and getting the economy to scale. Then we start seeing the, the, the cost declines um, and we create that virtuous circle and, and that's what we're going for. And, you know, I think there's a lot of opportunities in the Southern United States, um, both from, you know, looking at the leasing and, and, you know, we hope there'll be more leases in the future, but also trying to bring in some of the skills and the infrastructure and the knowledge of the oil and gas industry and transferring that knowledge over to, to the offshore industry. Um, those are our, uh, our knowledge and skills and, and vessel, uh, vessel uh, um, construction that are, that are prominent in, in that region, in the southern region of the country. And so there's a lot of opportunity for everybody from, from Massachusetts and Maine, even all the way down to benefit from offshore wind, not just the communities that are getting the energy delivery from the project. Great. And uh, so I've got one last question here. Uh, so if I'm not mistaken, the Amazon Wind Farm East project that has already been developed here in North Carolina generates and delivers power uh, within Dominion Energy and PJM service territories. Uh, will that be the case with some of the upcoming offshore projects? Uh, do you have a sense that maybe Duke might also be interested in moving in this direction as well and incorporating offshore wind generation into their por portfolio moving forward? So, you know, right now, what we've seen is is utilities are the are the main customers for offshore wind. Um, they so these projects are really large, right? So the 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 um, you know, the, the, our two projects in Massachusetts are 800 and 804 megawatts. Um, ocean wind in New Jersey is 1,100 megawatts. As you, as you mentioned with Amazon Wind Farm East, that's a big, a big project in the East Coast for wind, and that's, that's 200, 204, 208 megawatts. Um, so we need, for offshore to work, we need very large customers. Our um, Kitty Hawk territory in total could power 700,000 homes. The equivalent thereof. So we need we need large customers. So it's likely that those customers in this first round are going to be more on the on the utility scale side. That said, as we create that virtuous circle of supply chain and price declines that I'm talking about, you know, I think that's where we get the the third party type customers, the Amazons, the Googles, the Microsofts, the big data center customers, other aggregation of third parties more interested in this um, technology, but. But that, that's probably probably not necessarily the first stage. And that's exactly what happened on wind and solar onshore. The first customers were really utility customers. As we got experience and learnings and, and ability to drive down costs, that's when we got the commercial customers. So um, I, I think over time that will, will be the trajectory and that's what's going to allow us to kind of maximize the supply potential of the Atlantic coast is a multitude of different types of customers. Well, I know I, for one, Eric, uh, really enjoyed the conversation today and hearing about um, just the incredible momentum behind offshore wind. And as excited as I was to see turbines on the ground here onshore in North Carolina, I'm even more excited about the prospect of seeing turbines in the water off the shore of the state of North Carolina. And I know Avangrid's going to be leading in that conversation and leading in the development of making that happen. So I'm excited to stay in touch and would love to have you back on the podcast in the future as we get closer to getting those turbines in the ground. So thanks for joining us today on the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. Thanks, Matt. It was it was great to be here. I really enjoyed speaking with you and I'd love to come back and give you an update in the future as we move the project forward. So a quick recap from Eric. 
The development pipeline for the offshore wind industry is strong in North Carolina and the Southeast. As he mentioned, Avangrid has already won the lease from the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management for an area not far off the coast of Kitty Hawk, and plans are already in motion to start putting turbines in the water and generating electricity. We've got just a few more hurdles we have to jump through to get there, but we're well on our way. One item that Eric highlighted in our conversation was the importance of the supply chain for offshore wind in the U.S. and North Carolina specifically. Well, it just so happens that we were lucky enough to be joined by a representative of an offshore wind turbine manufacturer to talk specifically about the topic of supply chain and the prospects for manufacturing turbines here stateside and the southeast. So let's jump right into that conversation to hear a little bit more on the topic. And our next guest on the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast leads government and institutional relations for Siemens Gamesa Renewable Energy in North America, covering federal and state policy and regulatory issues for nearly 15 years. Our guest has worked with almost every type of renewable energy from several angles, development, construction, risk management, project management, manufacturing, sales, and policy. As head of government affairs, our guest manages strategic planning for government and institutional relationships, maintaining a close dialogue with the business development function for both the onshore and offshore business units, while also taking a hands-on role with state policy issues and new market entry planning. Friends of the pod, welcome Abby Watson, Head of Government Affairs from Siemens Gamesa to the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. Abby, welcome to the pod. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. Great. Well, we're really excited to have you here. So let's jump right into it. So can you tell us a little bit more about Siemens Gamesa and your role at the company? Sure. Yeah, happy to. Um, So I'm sure a lot of your listeners are familiar with Siemens. It's a pretty well-recognized brand. Um, Siemens Gamesa is a leading wind turbine manufacturer and service provider. Uh, We're a multinational company with a presence in over 90 countries, um, and we are a strong market leader in the offshore wind space. And Siemens Gamesa is actually publicly traded on the Iberian Stock Exchange under its own stock ticker. So we are an independent company that is separate from Siemens. Uh, We were created through a merger a little over three years ago where Siemens Wind Power uh, was spun off from the big Siemens and then Siemens Wind Power merged with Gamesa. And we are now Siemens Gamesa. Um, And so I came from the Gamesa side of the merger several years ago, and it's been quite a journey. We have a good presence here in the U.S. Uh, We've got domestic manufacturing facilities located in Kansas and Iowa that serve our onshore wind market. Uh, And we've been really uh, involved in a very hands-on way in helping to build the uh, policy and regulatory frameworks that are needed to support the offshore wind industry. You know, as as you're probably well aware, there there seems to be you know such a, a strong resurgence right now in um, interest in the offshore wind industry here in the U.S. So, just from a nationwide perspective, what do you see as the opportunity for growth within the offshore sector over the coming years? Uh, offshore wind is probably the most exciting growth opportunity. Um, you know, within I would say the renewable space in general, and I could be a little biased, uh, but 
the the prospects that we're seeing globally in terms of both new markets and existing markets that just continue to make really huge commitments to offshore wind uh, are sustaining a pretty incredible uh, increase in expected installations over the coming decade. We see a huge growth in markets in Europe, uh, in the UK, new markets emerging in Asia. So there's really, you know, a lot happening globally. Um, and that, of course, is a big factor for how we allocate resources as a company. So, you know, there's a lot of competition out there for investment within our organization. Um, so part of my job is to work with our team here in the U.S. to build the best business case that we can for investment in the U.S. market. And and thinking about that same question for North Carolina, you know, what do you see as the potential growth within the offshore industry here in the state of North Carolina? Well, North Carolina has some really great assets that I think are going to be a benefit as you all are looking to um, expand on your offshore wind ambitions. Um, there's definitely some really strong port and maritime resources in North Carolina. The Port of Wilmington in particular, I know, has been working quite closely on this issue and, and looking at what they need to do to prepare and attract the industry. Um, there is, of course, also a lease area that exists off the coast of North Carolina, the Kitty Hawk lease area, which would support uh, about 2,600 megawatts of offshore wind. So it's a pretty large lease area. Um, there's a little competition for that lease area. I think that I think the Commonwealth of Virginia might have some designs on the Kitty Hawk lease area. So it, you know. It, putting a little bit of pressure on North Carolina to, um, you know, formalize some of its offshore wind ambitions a little bit more. Uh, I would say that there's also already an existing onshore wind um, presence in North Carolina, particularly near the coast. So the Amazon wind farm um, is, you know, something that could potentially provide, you know, workforce synergies and things like that. So there is some presence there already. Um, Governor Cooper has been just a tremendous advocate for the industry and offshore wind makes up a pretty big part of his clean energy plan. And I know that um, there is an offshore wind study that's currently in the works so um, that the state can really um, plan and prepare for how best to capture uh, resources from this industry and, you know, find the best um, economic case uh, for North Carolina to build out more of an offshore wind industry. Uh, also very excited about the MOU that was just recently announced between North Carolina, Virginia, and Maryland. So that tri-state partnership is super exciting, especially for supply chain companies like ours, where we are definitely looking to see more um, collaboration and coordination between different states on you know, how they plan and implement their offshore wind markets. But I'd say the number one thing that the industry really needs to see from North Carolina in order to start making big plans and big investments there would be some action from the legislature. You know, it's uh, it's important to establish, you know, a, a real clear and stable market um, in order to attract some of that investment. So that's definitely uh, a piece that we're looking closely at. Yeah, I, I, I could not agree more. Um with you on, on, on that last part about signaling just a, a market that's open for investment and, um, you know, and signaling that uh, we're ready to, to welcome the offshore wind industry here in North Carolina with open arms. And 
Um, the governor and Department of Commerce have already made some strong steps in that direction. Um, you know, through the recent RFP and the the supply chain um, sort of analysis in the state and the MOU that Governor Cooper has signed with other states. So lots of good momentum taking place in North Carolina. Um, so thinking larger scale, taking a step back from the state, um, given that Siemens uh, Gamesa falls within the supply chain of offshore wind, I'm curious if you have a sense as to the overall potential scale of investment and jobs within the supply chain over the coming years if projections for growth of offshore wind are realized? Well, there are a lot of studies out there that have been done on this. Um, I will say that uh, the American Wind Energy Association, uh, AWEA for short, did release a study quite recently. I think it came out in the spring, um, and their study uh, estimated the potential impacts of uh, 30,000 megawatts of offshore wind on the East Coast, um, so 30 gigawatts for the, the energy nerds in the room. Um, and that is, I think, generally seen as what is really um, achievable for the East Coast offshore wind market in the near term. And near term for offshore wind is probably a little longer than people might normally think. But, you know, we're looking at, you know, the 2030, 2035 kind of time frame of going from you know, literally having, what is it, 42 megawatts currently installed off the coast of the U.S. So there's the 30 megawatt Block Island wind farm. And then we recently installed and commissioned the 12 megawatt Coastal Virginia offshore wind pilot wind farm. So that's 42 megawatts that we've got in the water currently operating. Um, and so to go from 42 to 30,000, is a pretty incredible ramp rate in the next 15 years. Um, but I think it's completely achievable. And the the industry, I would say, is already uh, very much working on that assumption and making decisions on that assumption um, based on just all of the policy certainty and regulatory certainty that's already been established um, and a lot of optimism about continued movement at the federal level on some of the key pieces that we need. Um, so based on that 30 gigawatts of offshore wind, AWEA has estimated that that would support up to 83,000 jobs, uh, would deliver about $25 billion annually in economic output by 2030. Um, so of course, supply chain is going to play a big part in that. Um, how much of a part you know, it is remains to be seen. Um, you know, it's clearly going to be important. I know that my company has a really strong commitment to localizing in the markets that we serve. Um, you know, when and how that happens and how it rolls out, a lot of it kind of depends on getting the certainty that we need from federal level uh, permitting moving forward and, you know, having an understanding of what the timeline on all of these developments really looks like. Um, I'd say another thing that we really need to see from a supply chain point of view is for the states to really start working together more in a collaborative fashion um, and looking at ways that they can recognize the value of U.S. produced content, even if it's produced in another state. Um, I think that's something that's really challenging for this market is the kind of state by state approach. Um, so, you know, I believe we're moving in the right direction with that. I think the the tri-state MOU that Governor Cooper signed is a really great step in the right direction there. Um, so supply chain is going to be a big part of that $25 billion annually um, and hopefully a, a, a larger part than, than we might expect. Are you enjoying this episode so far? Great. 
Well, then I'm here to burst your bubble because today's episode ends here, but the story does not. So if you want to hear the rest of the interview with Abby, where she dives in further to the topic of supply chain, along with a conversation with our new friend over the Department of Commerce, then you'll have to tune in to our next episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. All right, so we're cutting you short on today's content, but we're not going to leave you without a quick visit from Daniel Pate for Pate on the Pod. Pate on the Pod. Clean energy. Bro. Dude. Clean energy. And back by unpopular demand is Pate on the Pod. We are so excited that we were finally able to make it into Daniel Pate's schedule, and he took a break from watching football, screwing in light bulbs, and fixing leaky faucets across the house. Thanks, Daniel, for penciling us in. Thank you, Matt. And I think that I speak for everybody when I'm asking when you're going to put out the standalone dad jokes podcast. I mean, it's clearly what the people are wanting right now, and what the people need. That's what they say. Give the people what they want. So let's kick off Pate on the Pod with a news article that I am incredibly excited to see. So according to according to Duke Energy, demand in rooftop solar across the state has skyrocketed over the past few years, growing from 6,000 customers in 2017 to more than 18,000 customers last year. So maybe that's due in part to the Duke Energy rebate where customers are able to get more than four to $6,000 back as part of installing their system. So if I hear this correctly, I can save four to $6,000 by getting solar panels with a rebate. So basically I could use those savings to stock up on my Michelob Ultras and then I could use that solar power to keep them cold. I think you got yourself a deal there with me. As long as I'm not invited to that party, that doesn't sound fun. And in other news, <laughs> Our partners over at the, and in other news, our partners over at Blue Horizons Project, City of Asheville, Buncombe County, recently initiated a new SolarEyes campaign called SolarEyes Asheville Buncombe, giving the opportunity for consumers and customers in the Asheville region to purchase a new solar system at a discount of up to 20 to 30% off the cost of a typical system it's just sounding like more savings that i can uh put towards that uh i don't know probably that uh, hot tub i've been looking at over the last few years put that right in the backyard and sit there with my Michelob ultra and life is grand just the picture we all wanted to imagine daniel pate sitting in a hot tub drinking mick ultras if that doesn't describe dad then i don't know what does well that does it for Paid on the Pod. Our next podcast is in two weeks. That's 14 days from now. You know what else is coming up, though? Yeah, before I depart, I just wanted to make a quick reminder for all of our listeners out there that Father's Day 2021 is only 137 days away. So make sure you use that time to prepare appropriately to show appreciation for your father, for all the jokes and insights that he's provided throughout the year. You heard it here first, folks. Father's Day 2021. 
Start prepping. Start hoarding up on cases of Mick Ultra because you know that's what your dad really wants. And you know the deal. Let's stay in touch on Twitter. Give me a shout out at Matt Abel, M-A-T-T-A-B-E-L-E, for future episode ideas, questions for our next episode, thoughts on today's episode, and your worst energy joke one-liners. And episode 42 of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast is in the books. But before you leave, don't forget to rate, subscribe, and share the pod on whatever platform you are listening in from. Sharing this podcast with your network and growing the friends of the pod helps us get just a little bit closer to our shared vision of a clean energy economy for North Carolina. All right, that's it. See y'all later.